You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit SojournMontrose.com. Cool. So let's, uh, let's dive right in. Um, I think many of us, at least at some point, maybe, unless you're not a nerd, which so maybe, maybe not a lot of us, um, but at some point have sort of been to either a magic show or seen someone or at least had a friend who, who performs magic, right? Um, and and I'm, I'm always kind of fascinated by it, but, but what fascinates me most about it is not necessarily the trick itself, but it's like it, it's watching people react to that and then especially how that changes as people grow older, right? In that like, you know, as a kid, like when I first sort of had my, the, the first magic trick I ever saw, which was someone, you know, like pulling a quarter out of my ear, you know, I was like, how is that possible? That is amazing. You know, I can't believe that this, there is a reality that I exist in, in which you can pull money out of my ear. That's, that's awesome. That's fantastic, right? And so my response to that immediately was like, do, do it again. Do it again, right? That was amazing. Do it again. I want to see it again. I don't believe that it's real. So please, please do it again, right? And then here's what happens as you grow older, right? That awe sort of starts to wear off. And what, was, what used to be called magic is now called sleight of hand. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're wanting the magician to do it again, not because you're awed by what he's done, but because you're going to try to figure out, all right, what is it that he really did there? What is it that's going on underneath the surface? Because what is, what is readily apparent to me is not truth, is not reality. Right? So there's this, there's this sort of loss of innocence. There's this sort of loss of, of imagination of a place in which this could actually be reality, so much so that we're, we're not even concerted or concerned with the fact that something pretty neat's taking place. Or we're worried about trying to figure out what it is that's enabled that to be true or enabled that to happen, right? And so what we're going to do this morning, I think, ultimately, is we look at two different groups of people uh, from this church at Corinth is, is we'll see that, um, that really both of these groups of people are much like the young people who go to see magic shows and then the old kind of weird people that go, if they don't have kids, right? That those are the only people that go to magic shows or people that are older, older and have children and feel obligated. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Um, here's kind of what's taking place. Right? You've, got, you've got this church at Corinth that really, by all accounts, is kind of, it's kind of messed up. Like, they've got a lot of weird things going on uh, that Paul goes on to address later. But really, kind of what's at the bottom of all of that, what's at the bottom of all the strange things, is, is really this one critical issue. And it's, it's the issue of the gospel. And it's the issue of the gospel in light of two groups of people that really can't come together on anything because for centuries they've been opposed to each other in every way, culturally, spiritually, physically, like outward appearance, everything, right? Um, And yet in the gospel, Paul is trying to teach them that the gospel has the power to overcome all of those things, all of those differences, and to make a new and united people, right? And so this is what, I'm going to back up and just take verse 17 as well, but this is what Paul writes to this church, this group of people. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning 
I will thwart. And that's a, Paul quoting a portion of the Bible that was written before Jesus came. And then he goes on to say this in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. And verse 22 is really kind of where we're going to park for, for the majority of, of this morning. Um, but in it, right, we see these two groups of people who have now been sort of compared to one another, right? So you've got Jews on the one hand who look for signs, and you've got Greeks on one hand who look for wisdom. And so let's just talk about the Jews for a moment. Um, for, for, for us to really understand this, we have to kind of um, give ourselves at least a cursory understanding of, of culturally what's taking place here, right? And that you have this, this people, this Jewish people that um, really are the result of God's promise to Abraham, which we talked about last week, right? That God promised Abraham that he would have offspring that outnumbered the stars, that they would be a great nation, and that actually through that nation, God would reveal himself to all other nations, right? And so probably understandably so, there's a little bit of a chip on the Jewish shoulder, right? We're the people of God. Throughout the history and the ages of man, we have been preserved as his people, right? We have been enlightened with a knowledge of God. We are bestowing that graciously upon you, right? And yet, what Paul is showing us here is that, um, is that the Jews have a particular issue with, with Jesus and, and with this new faith, this continuance of the faith in Jesus, right? We talked about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises to the Jewish people, and yet, for whatever reason, it's actually the Jews that go on to crucify him, right? And so there's a disconnect there. There's a misunderstanding in which the Jews are not ready, not willing to accept Jesus Christ as the king that he claimed to be, right? They demanded signs from him. And look, if you have sort of a, a, a brief understanding of of the history of the Jewish people, then you know whether you believe the accounts to be true or not, right? They do, and that's, that's important because that's what frames their worldview. Right? But you, you know that they have a history in which really God has displayed his power for, the, for them in really big ways. Like, you want to talk about signs, right? Um, and, and really, he's done it in sort of two arenas, two arenas that, that the Jews really are looking for from Jesus as well, Right? He's shown his political power in what? Delivering them from the greatest, <laughs> the greatest nation of their time, Egypt, right? He, he showed political power in delivering them from other assailers, Philistines, Midianites, right? Delivered them from, from Babylon. He also showed his power supernaturally to this people, this Jewish people, right? Over time. He showed it in, I don't know, uh, creation. Um, <laughs> he, he showed it in... Um, parting the Red Sea. You know, Moses didn't take credit for that. Um, he showed it in walking with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He showed it to them in giving them water out of a rock in an arid wasteland. He showed it in delivering manna from heaven morning after morning, evening after evening. Right, and we can go on 
and on and on and on about these tales in the Jewish history of God giving them signs that he is not only their God, but that he is for them, right? And yet, the irony of all that is, is that at the culmination of, 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 of all that their nation and that their faith and that their belief comes, comes to a, a, a cataclysmic moment in, in Jesus' coming and in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they stumble upon that. Because the, the power in which God had displayed himself previously was maybe not readily apparent in the life of Jesus, Right? I mean, Jesus is on the cross, and what, what do they mock him with? If you're, if you're God, take yourself off the cross. It's that simple, right? And then we will believe. Even unto his death, they are asking for what? For signs. For signs. And so they stumbled at the cross of Christ. The rock that should have been their foundation instead trips them up because of the fact that this was God operating in a way that they had never seen him operate in before. That instead of coming in power, he came in weakness. And instead of in wisdom, in folly. So that's the Jews. Right? Primarily, the Jews are looking to power as the manifestation of Jesus' divinity, right? That's what they're looking for. And if you know the story of Jesus, they don't really get it. Now, the Greeks looked for, wis- for wisdom, right? Wisdom as the manifestation of divinity. Like if you are supernatural, if you are God, then you have, you have wisdom, you have insight into the, the ways of the world, the way the world works, right? They are looking for logic, for reason. Like they want to be able to dot all their I's and cross all their T's. They're looking for a cause, an explanation, or a justification for the actions and events that transpire around them, right? They're looking for a codified way in which the principles of proof and inference work together. And if you've read any of Jesus' teachings, then you know that nothing that he said and nothing that he did seemed to explain the deep questions of life and instead were often antithetical to the current cultural norm, right? I mean, let's just take a brief sampling of Jesus' teaching, right? Wealth. You want to have wealth? Give away all your wealth. Okay, that makes sense. Life. You want to have real life? To gain it, you must lose it. Okay. Uh, Blessing. Blessed are the persecuted. (laughs) Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What about Jesus on truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What about Jesus on God, Jesus on religion? I am He. I am He. So, it's probably no, it's no strange thing then, right, that these Greeks, that these, that these men of reason, that these men of logic would look upon those things and by looking at sort of all of the data that surrounded it say, no, that's not wisdom, that's foolishness. In fact, what you are saying is the very opposite of what is true. In fact, it is so far from the truth that 
rather than entertain it, I will laugh at it. Right? I mean, it, it makes sense when you think about it. So Greeks laughed at the cross of Christ. The rock that should have been their foundation instead is just a rock. Right? Instead of weighing up its merit, they'd rather debate whether it's igneous, metamorphic, or sedimentary. Nobody's been in science for a while, apparently. (laughs) But what does it go on to tell us? It says this in verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Christians look to Jesus as the manifestation of divinity. Christians find wisdom and power at the cross of Christ by God's grace and the work of the Spirit. And so here's what I want us to, to ultimately take this. Right, I think whether, we are, whether we're believers in the room or whether we're not, like we could both be at the same time looking for the wrong things from Jesus or expecting things that we've ultimately ultimately not been told we would be given. And so let's not look for signs like like the Jew. Let's not look for signs of God's power. Let's not ask God to prove himself when he has already done so in the sinless life, sinner's death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So the question that I think that we can ask ourselves this morning if we fall sort of in that Jewish camp where we need God to just sort of reveal himself, to show himself in power, right? Are we looking primarily for God to act powerfully for us in some mystical way? Or can we trust that God finally and fully already did so in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Like when does it end? We have testament upon testament of his power. Now, here's what I want to do, just as kind of a little asterisk on that statement, right? What I don't want you to hear me saying is that God is anti-miracle because he still works those. But God's greatest miracle is the saving work that Jesus accomplished on his cross. That's it. It's the fulcrum. It's, it's the middle. It's, it is that thing. It is a miracle that God through a, a man, a God-man, of course, right, could, could essentially have this guy walk in relative infamy, right, die a, a shameful death, right, a, a death that was not even, like, proper for a Roman citizen, a citizen of that, of that particular location, right? It was so heinous that it was not, if you're a Roman citizen, you'll never experience it. And yet that somehow through that and through his resurrection that God would effect salvation for millions of people in the millennia to come. Like that's, that's a sign, I would say. But let's also not do what the Greeks did. Let's not look for signs of anthropocentric wisdom, right? So human-centered wisdom like the Greeks. And instead, let's see the paradoxical theocentric or God-centric wisdom of God in the great power revealed in the weakness of the sinless life, sinner's death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
And I think the questions that we can ask ourselves there is, are we looking primarily for ways that we can rationally understand God so that our human reasoning is satisfied? Or can we trust that God finally and fully is Him from whom all reasoning ultimately flows? As the Creator, as the author, as the owner, as the sustainer of all things, right? Can we trust God? And here's my asterisk for this point. Some would, some would think that, okay, so what you're telling me is that I need to set aside thinking, that I need to set aside reason, that I, that I need to just be free from that burden, from the burden of actually having to think through what this really means. And yet God is not anti-knowledge or order. In fact, his creation is filled with it. And it's filled with it because he chose it to be so. But the greatest knowledge that we can acquire is ultimately found in the source of that knowledge, which is God. Here's what I would, I would have us to do or to think through this morning in light, of, in light of what Paul has for us here. As far as, as far as how Paul would have us to think in light of what he's writing here, I think what Paul wants us to be alright with is that it's okay for us not to have every single answer. Like that whether you're a Christian in the room this morning and you're like, man, there's still so many things about God that I can't even begin to fit inside my ability to rationalize. Or whether you're not a Christian in the room this morning and you have that exact same problem. I want, I want us to understand that, that Paul here is not anti-reason. He's not anti-logic. In fact, he regularly employs both of those things in his preaching throughout the book of Acts. Just go and read it. He speaks to the Greeks on their own terms. He uses those things. But he doesn't depend on them. He recognizes their limitations, that while reason and logic can be a road marker helping people along the path, that ultimately people can't come to belief solely by reason. We can't reason our way into God. We come to belief by the apparent foolishness of the cross. And I think, that, I think what Paul would have us to feel from this text is, is that if we're Christians in the room, like we can just trust the simple gospel, right? That just like we can be okay with, with not having the answers, we can, we can trust the fact that the gospel is, at the same time, both incredibly simple and vastly complicated. That if we're doubting this morning, that you don't have to be rid of all those doubts before you come to Jesus. Because he's faithful to walk with all of us through our doubts and questions as we follow him and trust. Jesus is big enough to take our questions. I'm going to say a statement that I think might help us, um, help us understand this a little bit. And what I mean when I say the gospel is incredibly simple. There, I believe... I believe that, that there will be uneducated, unlearned, inarticulate men in heaven and women. And there will be theologians in hell. And what I mean by that is that if we, like the Greeks, get so caught up in the in intricacy of the matter that we can't reconcile the fact that Jesus is Savior, then, then we're lost. And yet, at the same time, on this other side, if we feel like we need sort of some great manifestation of God's power apart from the cross of Christ, then we're in the same boat. 
And so there's a simplicity in all of this in, that, in confessing quite simply that Christ Jesus is who He says He is, that He's done what He said he's, he's done, and that He has provided for us the perfect record that we could not obtain for ourselves. That that's enough. That that's enough for you. That it's sufficient for you. Because His power is made perfect in weakness. And then as far as what I think Paul would have us to do, right? So he's got us thinking something. He's got us feeling something. And I think in light of that, he would have us to share the gospel faithfully. And here's, here's what I think we, we need to just get okay with as Christians, right? Because if we're Christians in the room, like I think a lot of us want to be seen as, as articulate, right? We want to be seen as thinking, as smart, right? Not as people who have abandoned the realm of knowledge. Not, not as people who, who have abandoned thought, right? But have rather subjected those things to ultimate knowledge and ultimate thought that we believe has been given to us in Christ. Right? That those live underneath His reign and rule. That those have been given to us by Him as a good gift. Right? So we want to engage in those things. We don't want to be seen as people who are inarticulate or unthinking or foolish. And yet I think what, I think what Paul ultimately is calling us to, to understand is that we can't reasonably expect marvel and awe every time we tell someone that a first century Jewish carpenter died for their sins against the cosmic, holy, and just God of all creation. Like that that's just unreasonable. Like that by man's reasoning, that is foolish. And that just because someone doesn't respond the way you did or the way you think they should doesn't make the gospel less of God's wisdom or less of His power because by earthly measures, it is unwise and it is unpowerful. It is foolish and it is weak. So here's the thing. Look, all of us want to be Tim Keller, right? If you, if you don't know who Tim Keller is, just think, take take Yoda and Christianity and just kind of like combine them together, right? That's Tim Keller. Super articulate. Any question, right? He'll just take it. Somebody ask him some of the hardest questions in the world. He'll just sit there and kind of act like he's having a hard time answering it, but inside he already knows it all, you know? Like all of us want to be that guy, and yet at the same time, there is a point at which that conversation gets to a place where it's, it's just simply necessary that we come to agreement that Christ is who He says He is and that He's done what He's done. And that will seem foolish at the end of the day to people who don't, who don't believe. It just will. And so while we don't like to be called unthinking and we don't like to be thought of as crazy or psycho or, you know, or, or just like un, un, unable to live in the, in the realm of reality, you know, and while all of those different insults and all of those different things may be levied or volleyed our way, like we can expect that and still not doubt the veracity of the truth, the veracity of the gospel, the veracity of what Jesus has done. And then I think what's great about this is that in verse 25 we get this great, great confidence boost in all of this. Where in verse 25 it says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, here's the thing. I think, um, I think verse, 
think verse 21 is kind of the key to all of this in terms of understanding that this kingdom that God is establishing is established ultimately by what seems outwardly from human perspective as foolish. It says this in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So here's the thing, right? Essentially what Paul is saying is that it was like, he's like, look, I gave you wisdom. I gave you wisdom in the garden. I told you what, what was good for human flourishing. Just, just follow me. Just this one thing, this is just to remind you that I'm boss and you're not. Okay, we, we got that one wrong, right? So, all right, here's a longer list of rules because now everything's broken, right? This is wise. You want humanity f- to flourish? Don't kill people. That would be a good way to start, right? Honor your father and mother. Don't covet other people's things. You'll, you'll live in a, in a more peaceful, more just place if those things are true, right? He's given us wisdom. He's given us power. He revealed himself in power. A burning bush that did not burn up, right? A red sea that was parted, right? Against all physics and all nature. Even Jesus himself, right? There's a storm and he looks out upon it and he tells it to be calm. And it's calm. Jesus came in signs. Jesus came in wisdom. And we heard him not. And so it tells us that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save people. And so let's not put some kind of intellectual veneer around Christianity, although I think that the intellect and Christianity are absolutely congruent. Let's remember that quite simply, the kingdom of God, this kingdom that is at hand, is, is ultimately characterized by what outwardly seems foolish, but to those who believe is the wisdom and the power of God for salvation unto all who would believe. Let's pray.